Welcome to the inside. With tickets selling fast for Spider-Man and crowds flocking to see Steven Spielberg's critically acclaimed West Side Story, this was the week the holiday season brought good cheer to Hollywood. As award season began to unfold, remarkable filmmaking was on full display in cinemas and fans began to speculate about where the Oscars are likely to land next March. As another chaotic COVID year came to a close, we thought it would be useful to talk about how movies have always moved through the years and stayed vital by evolving, exciting, and embracing new technologies and other changes. And no one has a better understanding of the history of movie making than our guest today. Lenny Lipton is the author of the new book, Cinema in Flux. It's a fascinating 600-page history of how movies have been growing and exciting fans for centuries. Lenny is the inventor of the 3D systems that we enjoy at cinemas now. NASA uses a system he invented to drive the Mars lander on the surface of Mars. And finally, Lenny wrote one of the most beloved songs of all time. He penned the words to Puff the Magic Dragon. Welcome, Lenny Lipton. It's a pleasure to see you again. Lenny, it's fascinating. We talk every few years in, a, in an environment like this, and you're always up to something new. Congratulations on this book. It's hundreds of pages. It is going to be the reference book for every college library in the country, and any serious filmmaker is going to want to have this book. Uh, what prompted you to write it? I was invited to give a lecture at the Paris Cinematheque. I spent a week in Paris and I gave uh, two lectures and had a wonderful time learning about the Cinematheque. And I felt, oh, how sad it is. We have nothing like this in Los Angeles. They loved cinema in a way that we just don't hear. And they had a wonderful warehouse with over 5,000 pieces of wild stuff, beginning with about the 17th century up until now. And I had a wonderful time wandering through it and began to realize I knew very little. I was about 70 years old and I knew my life really had effectively ended as being an inventor. And I needed something to do or I'd go nuts. And so I began to research the history of motion picture technology. And it just sent me on a course for more than 10 years. Everybody, and I mean this sincerely, I have this book and uh, others are going to want to have it because it's the ultimate reference book. I'd love to take you through two or three areas and, and just get your take on the importance of those developments. Let's start in 1659 and what's been called the Magic Lantern. What was the Magic Lantern and what brought it about? Uh, because it's, it's kind of the beginning of motion pictures, according to your book. A brilliant physicist, uh, Christian Huygens, he built one, a projector. He had this brainstorm and he made what we today we call a slide projector. Uh, it had a, a light, which was just a, a, you know, a burning lantern with a mirror behind it and then a, a glass painted with pictures written on it and a lens. He used lenses that he had made for his telescope and he began to project movies. And people saw it and obviously it was such a good idea, people began to make these. 
I want to take you through the Lumiere brothers were working in France in the late 1900s. I want to take you to 1928. William Fox spends $15 million at that time, a lot of money to open movie tone on Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles, which would eventually become 20th century Fox studios to create talkies and movies with sound. How did people feel about sound when it came in? Did they immediately see it as uh, something that would be fantastic by that time? Obviously movies were a big deal. Everybody in America and around the world went to them, but tell us about that era. What was happening when, when talkies came along? Jim, it's such a good question. <laughs> I, I, it, I, I'd like to make it simple. But uh, after Edison invented 35-millimeter film, he hooked up uh, his invention, the phonograph. So he tried to have music come out of his movies. It turned out to be very hard to make the two work together. And it actually became commercially of some success because of the uh, Warners. And they, they worked with the Western Electric. The damn thing about 35 millimeter was it was amazingly flexible because you could take the 35 film that had a film emulsion on it and you could actually make pictures of sound on the edge of the film and you could play it back and they learn how to make it better and better. And by putting the picture and the sound on a single piece of film, it worked very well and people make it better and better. And what was the reaction to the by the industry when sound came along? You've got to understand that most people in that business were conservative. They were making money, a lot of money, before the introduction of sound. So it wasn't an idea that was embraced. The big theaters... They were like 20 of the theaters made 80% of the money. They made these movies that were released with scores that were played with orchestra. And they realized that it was eating a tremendous amount of money. So the motive that Warners had was to play back their phonographs to take place of the musicians. Just cut out the cost of the musicians. Cut the cost out. And so for the first year or two or so, the most important thing wasn't lip sync. That wasn't important to the businessmen. They wanted to get rid of the orchestra. So interestingly, what you're saying is the silent era was a highly profitable era for the filmmakers. Sound really came in as an opportunity to cut costs by getting rid of local musicians in all the movie palaces across the country. Yes, save that money. yes. And the thing yeah. that you need to grasp around this is that the silent movie was never silent. As soon as people began to project movies in vaudeville theaters, in Nickelodeons, it always had music. It had somebody playing a piano or there were guys making, uh, they would speak as the actors were being projected, saying things, they'd have effects. So it always had sound. And it was exactly what people had done with the Magic Lantern for 350, over 300 years. So it was very much the same medium that occurred when so-called silent 
projectors started in about 18, you know, 95. So let's move ahead to 1938, another major transition. Two musicians named Manns and Godowski, they were hired at Eastman and eventually invented Kodachrome color film. Did the studios welcome color? Well, these two guys, they were brilliant musicians. They loved movies. They saw terrible color movies in, in Manhattan and thought they could do better when they were kids. And they sold the idea to Kodak and they hired him. I think they worked for three or four hours. They didn't have anybody in Kodak who had the idea they had and they invented Kodachrome. And it was released first, I think it was 35, for uh, 16 millimeter film. And about the 36, it was introduced as slides for 35 millimeter. Like if you had a, a Leica or a Contax, you could, and, the, and the color was beautiful. It was gorgeous. Well, you tell a great story in the book that they had to work in the darkroom and time the chemical process for the film developing. And since they were in the dark, they couldn't turn on a light to see the clock. Right. So they would time themselves by humming the final movement of Brahms' C minor symphony to know where the process yes, was. In order, That's just, right. In order to do the process, it had to be a, a certain amount of time for dyes to diffuse into the layers and they they couldn't see in the dark, so they sang their uh, the, the the you know the classical pieces they knew, and that's how they timed it. So what what did the impact of color have on the movie industry? Enormous. It was absolutely enormous. Kodachrome it, it rapid very quickly in a few years. It went from eight hours to process a piece of film to uh, thirty minutes, and the color was beautiful. It was the first time it was such a, a motion picture product that you could make because the color was the way we're looking at each now or we see movies. It was beautiful. It was an inspiration because of the beautiful thing about 35 millimeter film on celluloid, the photochemical process was very flexible. You could actually take blackened film and use the photochemical process. And if you were smart enough, you could actually add sound on the same piece of film and add color to it. And uh, people in uh, German, um, Agfa, made their own. And in the United States, Technicolor, very brilliant guys, learned how to make uh, special cameras. They only built 36 of these cameras. And they, they began to make beautiful color uh, movies. Uh, you, did you ever see um, color movies that were made in the in the in the late '30s? Sure, uh, Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind. Absolutely gorgeous. It was so beautiful. It was thrilling. It. it I, I. What can I say? It was wonderful. The book is called The Cinema in Flux, The Evolution of Motion Picture Technology from the Magic Lantern to the Digital Era, and it's available on Amazon and anywhere great books are sold. We'll be right back. The Insiders is proudly presented by Cineonic. 
Cineonics Future Ready Enhanced Services and Technology Solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 95,000 projectors installed globally, cinemas around the world trust laser projection by Cineonic to power the next generation of movie going. Visit Cineonic.com today and discover why theaters look to Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. Lenny Lipton is our guest today. He is the author of The Cinema in Flux. Lenny, the next era is the move to digital and 3D I'd love to talk to you about. You got a call from James Cameron before Avatar. What was that call like? I think it was about 2003, and I get a call from a secretary. It says, it's James Cameron. I said, who's he? And she said, he's the filmmaker. I said, okay, I'll talk to him. Uh, and I realized he was a, a customer because he was buying our stereoscopic uh, systems because he was the kind of a guy he liked to do, go beneath the surface in the Pacific, and they would take 3D movies using our stuff and looking at it. So he knew who I was. And he said, uh, can you do something like this uh, with movies? And I said, yeah, you send your guy here or you come on down and I'll show you because we were making the Z-screen out of uh, these projectors, uh, the TI projectors that they weren't quite as good as they are now in theaters. But we, we had a, a little theater and we were projecting beautiful 3D movies. So Avatar comes out and becomes the biggest movie of all time. And we see 3D cinemas everywhere. We see 3D movies everywhere. We still see all of Marvel's movies, many of the big action movies and spectacles are, are, are 3D. Where is 3D right now? In, uh, I think it was 2005, we made 89 pictures in Z-screens. Almost all of them were in the United States, a couple in Canada, and a couple in Mexico. And um, Disney took the little chicken movie, a very bad, terrible, horrible movie, and they converted it into 3D, and it, it killed. It made money. So the, the combination of what uh, TI did and RD did was the thing that actually put digital projection, it sewed the thing. They bought it because it was a new gimmick by projecting 3D movies, and the companies began to buy them. Uh, the studios figured out a way to come up a mortgage so people could buy the projectors. So here we talk about the industry and we go from sound to color <laughs> to 3D. And at every step of the way, you kind of describe a conservative industry that makes the decision either to save money or to thrill audiences and make money. So these are all financial decisions that that move through, right? I researched what a 35 millimeter feature film cost. And it was hard to get the right number, what a print cost. But I figured they were about 800 bucks for a feature film. Well, if they could send a disc with a, uh, a digital movie, properly designed, it probably cost 25 bucks. I looked at several figures, but it, it, it must have been about 
the whole theater was saving a billion dollars a year. In prints? Yes. By going to digital? Yes, and they had to find a way to get the exhibitors to switch from 35 to projector, and they, they found a clever way to help them. You have been involved in the space program. You invented the crystallized eyewear that allows the scientists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to actually steer and drive the Mars rover through the Mars landscape. What does that allow scientists to do, and um, how did that happen? We had an associated company, a company that made um, technology for people like Boeing and people like that, and they got a contract with NASA so that you could drive the rover on Mars. And it was important to see in 3D because if you could see in 3D, you could keep the rover from falling into a hole. It sounds very simple, but you have to be able to see in 3D. You're one of the few people who have written a song that every child in the world knows, I would suspect. You wrote the song Puff the Magic Dragon, and of course it became the tune that every parent sings to a child. And the royalties from that song helped you create a life to invent all the technologies and all these other wonderful contributions you've made. Tell us about writing Puff the Magic Dragon. My first year at Cornell... Uh, I was in, in um, sitting in a library and I read a, a poem and I, I went home to uh, Peter Yarrow's apartment down the hill uh, on State Street. What's, what city? Where were you? Oh, uh, at Cornell. It's in Ithaca. Okay. New York? Yeah. And um, nobody was home, but I was, I, we were all going to have dinner and the door was open and I used Yarrow's typewriter, and I typed Puff the Magic Dragon, live by the sea, and from the blah, blah, blah. And I wrote them for a couple of paragraphs. And Yarrow took it, and he uh, played a guitar and sang. And he later became part of this team. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Right. And so he set it to music, and I started to get royalties. And they were enough. I think it was about in 1965, I was getting about $7,000 a year. It was a lot of money now. So I could, I really, I could do what I wanted to do. I was able to live and shoot movies. I made 25 movies for about 10 years, mostly about the hippie story. I was very interested in that. It was my life. I made movies like that. My first three years after Cornell, I worked for Life, you know, the magazine. Right, and, Life Magazine. Uh, oh, they, oh, they traded me. I, I learned so much. And then I worked for uh, Popular Photography. Elon Musk named his Dragon spacecraft after your song. How does that feel when you see the Dragon spacecraft doing such magnificent things and knowing that Elon Musk was inspired by something that you did? Well, the first thing I thought of was, I'm going to call him up, and I want to go up in the rocket ship with him. <laughs> But, you know, by that time, I thought, that's not for me anymore. What do you tell everyone who asks you what the song is all about? It's a story about saying goodbye to your youth. And the dragon gets bummed out. And another boy shows up, or a girl, and comes back to his dragon. And the cycle kept on going. And I believe that the ability to have a visionary about life. I thought that was 
very important for me. And I'll tell you something now, it's just the damn strangest thing. It was like a lot of the people in my book, the hundred inventors who I talked about, most of them weren't trying to make a buck. They were so interested in movies and coming up color or sound or lenses. And I felt I was part of these guys. Their story was part of my story. It was almost writing a biography of my story. I, I became, Jim, I don't know how to explain it. I was a very lucky guy. But you related very personally to the people that you wrote about in your book. Yes, but I tried to be, I was now a historian. And what happened to me was that no matter how crazy some of those inventors were, I liked them. Some of them were very eccentric and strange, they had strange stories. Of course, I could only write sketches, but a couple of people were very interesting, and I would write more about them, like Edison or William Fox. Of all of the people that you wrote about, is there someone that you identify with that you like the most or you'd want to have dinner with if you could? Some of them I liked very much or found them, to, in some cases, they might even be odious, but it would be wonderful to spend time with them. But I didn't hate them. Tell us about one that you're fascinated with. William Fox was a Jewish emigrant who lived on the Lower East Side. I had many brothers and sisters, I think. And he was in a, a, a guy who, as a kid, started to sell candy in the park and uh, got arrested by the police. He didn't have a license. And he kept on doing more stuff like that became very interested in movies. And he was one of the early moguls who started a studio. But he was the only one of them who believed that he could grow his life business through technology. It's damn interesting because the other guys were more concerned about keeping things on a, on a level. But Fox saw a vision. He was a disruptor. Yes. He saw he could add color. He saw that he could add sound. And he could also add 70 millimeter. This is in 1920, 1930. All that stuff, almost 25 years later, they took those old projectors that Fox had made and they pulled them out of the warehouse and they turned them into 70 millimeter. You know, you were able to shoot movies with those stuff that he started. But almost everything he tried failed. So you've watched 300 years of history being made around this subject and writing this book. Are you optimistic about the future of the motion picture industry as we know it? Of course. We're a wonderful human race of coming up with beautiful ideas. But if we're talking about movies, it won't go away because it fulfills something we need. There's something about this that teaches us. In, in some ways, you know, it puts your mind to sleep. It's almost uh, a narcotic looking at movies. And yet, wonderful movies tell us about who we are, like 2001, or, you know, all kinds of movies, some comedies that are funny. They teach us. Uh, so I, I believe in movies. I don't know what form it will take, but we're a wonderful species. Ang Lee told us once, you know, movies help us give life meaningful shape. Yes. And I, and I love your take that it speaks 
at some level, it speaks to us about who we are. Yes, he's, he's a wonderful man and has that visionary look. And that's, it's a wonderful thing. The book is The Cinema in Flux. Lenny, you, sir, are a national treasure. Good luck with the book, and please come back soon. Well, it's very nice to talk to you, Jim. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You know, we got started with this a long time ago. What did we call it? The 3D? Society. Yeah, and then you evolved it. So I'm proud of you. Well, well, thank you. You've been a I'm part not kidding. I'm because, well, you, because you're able to organize something and have all these minds of people who, who can make something happen. And I don't know how you're able to do that, but you've kept it up. Well, you've, uh, you've been an inspiration through all of this. You've been one of the, the people who never lets go. You are constantly creating something, and it's inspirational to the rest of us. You really are. I don't know why. I just don't know why. I really don't know why. Well, that's the reason we want you back. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Take care. Thank you, Lenny. Our quote of the day comes from author Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and magic is just science we don't understand yet. Thank you, Lenny. Thank you for listening. Happy holidays, everyone. The Insiders is presented by Cineonic and produced by the Advanced Imaging Society in Hollywood. Our executive producers are Adam Castles in New York and Mike Piltzecker in Los Angeles. Brett Harrison produced today's show, and our technical director is Matthew Bach Lombardo. This is AIS.